Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, small and faithful group. Thank you for our continued opportunity to learn and to study in your word. Thank you, Father, that no matter what happens in our world, no matter how our days are orchestrated and, and what may come along to interrupt our schedules, Father, nevertheless, you continue to call men and women back to your word and to a, a faithful walk with you through, through the instruction of your word. Thank you for the book of Acts, and thank you, Father, for the example of the early church. And we ask, Father, that as we study, we see application in our own lives and in our hearts for how to live out what we learn and be a representative as your church gathered today, much as those who were gathered centuries earlier so well represented you in their day. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We left off really right in the middle of the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So let's go back into it, pick it up, finish it off, and then go forward from there in chapter 5. We're at about verse 7 in chapter 5, the point at which uh, Ananias, having come to Paul and made the mistake of lying to God and to the Holy Spirit and withholding what he had promised, then his wife Sapphira shows up uh, a few hours later. Let's look at verse 7 in chapter 5. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over, all, over the whole church and all who heard of these things. So it's a few hours later, it says here, an interval of three hours, and Ananias' wife comes back to wherever this gathering was of where the Christians were hanging out, whatever this, this, this place was, perhaps the place that many of them were living at the time. And there's no indication, of course, that she has any knowledge of her husband's predicament. So she comes into the moment not knowing what's happened. But you can imagine that by this point, a number of things have transpired following the death of Ananias. Uh, Word must have spread fairly quickly within the body of Christ as it was gathered there that this event had happened. And probably the backstory was also starting to spread about why. And in some way, somehow, Sapphira doesn't hear any of this, which is sort of interesting in a way because... You might have expected that as she's even walking into the, the setting or toward Peter's office, whatever he was in, that there might have been some attempt to, to console her or talk to her or something. But, but on the other hand, perhaps they knew that they weren't to talk to her or they uh, didn't know what to say to her or they just were trying to evaluate what to do in light of the circumstances. So she makes it to Peter. And also, there's probably no reason to warn her. And by warn her, I mean to give her any advanced knowledge of the conversation that was going to take place, because no one would have necessarily assumed that she had anything to do with Ananias' deception. There's no reason to assume she's complicit in it. Men ran the finances. Men were the only ones who had the right to deal with property in one form or another. Women would have had very little to say about it in most cases in that day. So uh, there was probably little reason to think that she would have known anything about her husband's decision or the price that was paid or any of those details. In this case, though, she did know. 
as we find out in the text. She knew about what her husband had done. Notice the text doesn't say that she agreed to it or that she even condoned it. It only knows that she knew about it. And this was her opportunity for repentance and confession. Now, we know that they conspired in advance about the amount. And just think about the question. She might have suspected something was amiss by the mere fact that he's questioning her about this. It suggests that there's something wrong. So it all adds up to a moment of opportunity for her to recognize that they're making a conscious decision to sin and to do the wrong thing. And is and her conscience probably convicted her in the moment, just in that pause as she hears the question. Nevertheless, she decides to sin as her husband did. She says that the money we gave you is all that we received, which was a lie. And she decided to give her loyalty to her husband and sin with him rather than give her loyalty to God in truthfulness. When Peter named the prize, she must have known her husband had already given that, that amount to Peter. And rather than admit her husband had lied, she agreed. Maybe to protect him, maybe to honor him. But in any case, honoring your husband comes second to honoring the Lord. And when she answered, she incriminated herself. And based on her answer, she was convicted. And then she dies, as you see. And in fact, when it says she is buried beside her husband, the word beside in Greek literally means toward. It suggests face to face. As if, you know, they kind of just put one on top of the other. A kind of ignominious way to bury. The situation, as it plays out, achieves the desired result. Great fear among the people. And don't miss that. That's the desired result. Considering all the ways in which Peter could have responded to the sin, or that the Lord could have responded to the sin, the Lord takes a dramatic, extreme response, you could say. There's only one reason why you take an extreme response under these circumstances, and that is to produce an extreme reaction. And in this case, fear. Great fear within the church among all who heard the events. This is the first mention of the word church in the book of Acts. And that fact alone emphasizes that God is at work here in these events, producing a cohesive whole, working to bring together the body of Christ and instruct them as a whole, do something to help form them in the right way. And there is a huge parallel here out of the Old Testament for how God, through various dispensations, began those respective dispensations. In the dispensation of innocence, which is the time in the garden prior to the fall, Adam's sin was met with a very serious and very unique punishment from God to make a point. In the dispensation of conscience, which followed the fall, you saw Cain's murder early in that dispensation, and that sin was met with a serious and unique response by God, which was to make a point. In the dispensation of civil government, that is, during the time of following the flood and into the Tower of Babel, the sin of the Tower of Babel was the first major sin of that dispensation. It was met with a very serious and unique response from God to make a point. In the dispensation of patriarchal rule following the Abrahamic covenant, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was the first major sin of that day in, the, in that dispensation. It was met with a very serious and unique punishment, which was intended to make a point. We still talk about that, right? And in the dispensation of law, following the giving of the law, the early failure, the early failure of that group was the Jews worshiping the calf at the mountain, which was met with a very serious and unique point in that response as well to the people of Israel. There's a pattern as a new dispensation arrives. 
There is usually an early opportunity for sin to be seen in that new dispensation and for then a measure of response to take place, usually in a dramatic way, to make a point. Think about all the different things God did in in response to all these unique sins that marked each of those dispensations. Each of those have never been repeated. Similarly, Ananias and Sapphira suffer a fate that, to my knowledge, no other Christian has ever suffered. So, each major dispensation of God's grace includes an early failure, and that response is always there to make a point. And the effect of the response, the point, in other words, is to warn others and to cause obedience. To not take lightly sin in that dispensation or in that period of time. In a sense, God's stern response is a form of grace itself since it motivates others to respect God's decrees, at least initially and to some extent. Not perfectly, granted, but it has its intended effect, at least initially. And here we see a sin occurring early in the church age, which is our dispensation, the dispensation of grace. And God responds through Peter with a unique and stern response, and it dissuades others from following in their footsteps. And it also demonstrates the seriousness of the new covenant. In a way, it kind of marks that we have entered a new period. There's something different. And it reminds us of what Peter himself wrote in his first letter, that judgment will begin with the house of God. He wrote in 1 Peter 4, 17, he said, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I can't help but think that maybe Peter was thinking back to this very moment as he writes that judgment begins in the house of God. Based on the combination of strong leadership, stern responses to sin, supernatural displays of the Holy Spirit, you have this perfect soil in which the early church can grow and and cultivate and flourish. And that's what you see next in chapter 5, verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Well, here again, notice that there are signs and wonders, miracles of one type or another, healings, etc., in the early church. But where were they coming from? Verse 12 says, at the hands of the apostles. Further proof, yet again, that these miraculous wonders were limited to the apostles. They were not common to the church. But the people were of one accord. The word in Greek literally means of one mind. Single-mindedness. They had a single-mindedness probably about their purpose, perhaps about their doctrines or their understanding of God's truth in the church. In their living together, there was a, a unanimity of thought that extended into several areas. And Luke, it would seem here, contrasts the miracles and the common mind of the early church with the disobedience of Ananias and Sapphira and the miraculous death that they suffered. This seems to be that, that contrast drawn in the text naturally. Luke says they're meeting in Solomon's portico. If you have pictures of what Herod's uh, temple looked like, maybe in your Bible sometimes or elsewhere, you'll know in the court of the Gentiles, the large court that surrounds the temple proper, one side of it had a covered area, basically like a large covered porch or portico is what it's called, 
But it's big. If you look at the dimensions of this area, we're talking about a space that's big enough to hold thousands and thousands of people if they were all packed into this space. By some estimates, the church had grown to 10,000 or more believers at this early point still. Remember, they gained 3,000 in one day and then they gained 5,000 on another day. And in between all of that, it's said already, as Luke uh, narrated, narrated, that they were bringing multitudes of people on a continual basis. So the numbers are growing fast, easily 10,000, maybe more. And under those circumstances, where do you meet? You know, the concept of local congregations, even past the time of this church, going well into the first century, uh, the, the sense of a local congregation was, was, for the most part, extended to an entire city. So a city had a congregation. And then beyond that city, there was another city, and that city had another congregation. But you generally didn't divide it up much within the city. You wouldn't typically think of the city of Jerusalem, for example, having multiple churches. The city had the church, and then another city had the church. The church was all Christians in that place. And therefore, if the church in that city wanted to meet together, where would you put 10,000 people? It's a challenge. Well, the same could be said for almost any reason together. Where would you put 10,000 people who wanted to get together for any reason? And the answer is always the same. You went to the temple in Jerusalem anyway. That's the meeting place. That's the equivalent to the Colosseum. That's the big open air structure that allows for people to meet effectively, efficiently. So they are now meeting in the largest venue in the city in order to accommodate their numbers. In verse 13, Luke mentions that the rest of them dared not associate with the early church. And them here refers to the rest of the Jews in Jerusalem, non-believers. And why did they fear? Well, they probably feared, at least in part, the Pharisees. They feared being associated with a group that had been prohibited by rule of of law, rule of the council of, of the Sanhedrin, from being together teaching in Jesus' name. And they probably also feared what just happened. I mean, the thing that, that you hear leading into this moment is the Ananias and Sapphira example. And that probably contributed to a kind of fear over the power that the dis- apostles had displayed, a concern over what was behind it and so on. But then, interestingly, Luke adds that they held the early Christians in high regard. They were fearful enough not to join them, but they had respect for them and appreciation for them. The early church in this way models nearly perfectly the biblical principle that the church must be salt and light in the world. As it's described, as it's explained in Scripture, the church is to stand out, but in the good way of standing out. Salt is a good thing when it's added to food because of how it makes the flavor distinct. Salt stands out in a good way. Light stands out in a dark room in a good way. Unfortunately... The church has often taken that concept and turned it on its head and we stand out for all the wrong reasons. In this case, you see the early church standing apart from the world, standing apart from it, distinct from it, and doing so in such a way that they bring appreciation and ultimately glory to God. Not disharmony, not uh, discredit. And at least until widespread persecution breaks out later in the first century, the church was not, as it seems here, as it suggests here, it was not perceived as a negative or disruptive or strident or militant or some other kind of negative view of a group like you might see sometimes today. And the ways in which we don't do this well today, the ways in which the church fails at this mission today, is in assuming that merely distancing ourselves from popular culture 
is the same thing as being salt and light. One is not the same as the other. We find often ways to stand out which are counterproductive to the message of the gospel. Um, by in, in one way, perhaps more than any other, we become known as people who are against things rather than as people who are presenting something of value or of interest or uh, of, of benefit. So we are against certain policies in government or we are against certain things in schools or we are against certain ways of living or lifestyles, etc. Maybe for good reason we should be distanced from those things. But we certainly can make the message harder to receive or at least less inclined to be received in some sense by focusing only on what we're against or only what it is that's keeping us separate. They are fulfilling the expectations that Paul gave in his letter to the Corinthians. You'll know in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul makes a comparison to being unequally yoked and so on. But listen to it in this context, the one we're in now. He says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Biel? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. So we're called to be out and separate. And this group is doing it, but in a way that is attractive to the community around them. Paul goes further, you may know, in Romans, and I won't read the verses, but you can go back for yourself. Look at Romans 12 and 13 holistically. It's a, a nice little segment of Romans where Paul is focused on how we relate to our society and to the culture around us. And he exhorts the church in those two chapters to be good citizens and respectful persons in their community and their church, honoring the authorities around them, paying their taxes, doing the things that you should do so that you are not perceived to be a negative influence in the, in the world around you, honoring one another and so on. And then he begins that chapter 12, Romans 12, verse 2, by saying, do not be conformed to this world. So here are the two things knit together. Don't be conformed, but be a good contributor, a good partner, a good citizen, a good example. But don't be conformed. You see here in the early church exactly how that played out. They were in visible places, assembling where everyone else assembled, a part of the community, but yet standing out in what they believed and how they treated one another, but for good, and how they loved one another, and how they sold their goods to support one another. Things that made them stand out from what others did, but in a good way. And all the while, we're told God continues to grow the early church within the city of Jerusalem. Despite the fact that the people feared the group, the Lord keeps adding to the church. What a powerful lesson on how to do church growth. Notice the people are flocking to the faith in Jerusalem, despite the fear of the new movement. They may have respected the movement, but they weren't attracted to it in the traditional sense. They were almost afraid to go near it, right? It wasn't attraction. It was different. And yet the church grows. The pattern that you see here defies the church growth philosophy. The church growth philosophy says you gain growth by being attractive, by making something happen within yourself in terms of your message or your organization and so on that appeals naturally to people. And what God did here was create a circumstance in which the nature of the body and its miracles and all that came with it was not naturally attractive. In fact, it was naturally unattractive or fearful. And yet, even then, it still attracted people into the church because God was capable of overcoming that and growing the church despite that. The church grows fastest under persecution. Typically, we see that. And in parts of the world now where the, where the gospel is, is taking root in a very powerful way are the parts of the world where it's very dangerous to become a Christian. 
So it's, it's not attractive in fleshly terms, but God overcomes that. And that's the power of God to call and, and, to, and to bring men into faith. And that defies the current philosophy that says you have to do it in the power of, of men's flesh, something attractive. Growth, by the way, from any other source is likely false growth. It's possible to grow a church without relying on the Lord. And the growth can be numeric, meaning more bodies, but it's not going to be spiritual, meaning it's not adding Christians in most cases. Look at verse 15 again. Some of your Bibles probably show this already. My version does not. But in verse 15, it starts by saying, to such an extent that even the sick were carried into the streets. To what such an extent? To the fact that God was adding so many people to the church? That extent? No. That doesn't make any sense. And in fact, there's a parenthetical statement in the middle of that paragraph or that passage I read in chapter 5 that if you have it marked in your Bibles, you see it already, but some Bibles choose not to mark it because it's an editorial kind of or, or an interpretive addition to the text. But it's appropriate because look back at verse 12. Luke starts by saying, Many signs and wonders were happening at the hands of the apostles. Then in the second half of that verse, Luke mentions how they were gathered in the temple. Now to understand the narrative properly here, you need to insert an open parenthesis before the statement about being of one accord. So you insert the parenthesis after the word people in my version. So at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. Open parenthesis. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem and all the more believers in the Lord. Multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Close parenthesis. And then you move on. So take out for the moment verses 13, 14 and link chapter five, verse 12 directly to verse 15. And this is how it would read at the hands of the apostles. Many signs and wonders were taking place among the people to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets. Now you understand why they were why those two things are being linked. Luke just puts in a parenthetical statement there about the fact that. The church, while this is going on, is of one accord meeting in, in the portico and seeing numbers added to them. But around that is the larger discussion of miracles. And he puts the two together because it's probably the case that one was leading to the other, which is the logical conclusion of why God enabled Peter to have these powers. The display of power to the extent that it heals somebody is an attention-grabbing moment, attention-grabbing moment and an attractive one at that. And as those people are being... Look at the miracle here. Look at the genius of the miracle. What does a, a healing man tend to do? Attract people. And not just from within the city, we're told, from cities around Jerusalem. So the church didn't have to go out and get anybody. God was sucking them in like a magnet because he was giving Peter this opportunity to heal and draw attention to the, to the message, bring people closer to him and to the church. Which then gives you the answer for why was the early church given these miracles through the apostles. So you have Peter healing, it's drawing people in. And the church around him is growing and, and of one mind. In verse 15, Luke returns to his main thought. The apostles were performing many miracles. And even his shadow alone, when it's cast upon someone who needed healing, was causing them to be healed. In Peter was an ability, supernatural ability, that God needed or wanted so that his ministry of the gospel had a ready-made audience. And that was the power of the miracle. It also, of course, served the purpose of gaining his authority for the church and it gained him the ability to discipline in the church. It was a multifaceted purpose, but 
one of the key reasons was to ensure that the message of the gospel had an audience. So uh, as the crowd is aware of this, as people in the surrounding cities hear of this, according to verse 16, they are all being healed. So their behavior to put people on the street and hope that Paul's shadow would glance across them, that's not superstitious. If everyone is being healed, it's the logical thing to do. As soon as that connection gets made, his shadow means good things for me. Go find someone and put him where his shadow will fall. Clearly, God was using Peter here in his role. And the manifestation that God made through Peter brought him glory, brought the church growth. Probably doesn't surprise you to hear that false teachers have turned to this passage and used it to defend the prosperity gospel when prosperity is in the context of health. The fact here that it says all were healed can be twisted in a prosperity gospel mind to imply it's proof God wants everyone to be healed and that it is, it is possible or available to the church that we would reach a place where all are healed, despite the fact that outside of this moment, that's never been seen. And it's really just bad exegesis of Scripture. It's absolutely, logically, bad use of Scripture. Luke here is obviously describing an event. He's not prescribing how the church itself should expect things to go in the future. It's nothing more than simply a description of how God is working in the moment. Now, as we might imagine, all of this success and the growth of the church and so on, the 10,000 plus people meeting now in the temple, brings a lot of negative attention from those who were God's enemies. And that's where the rest of the chapter goes. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the Senate of the sons of Israel and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back, saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the door. But when we had it opened up, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them and as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in the prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. The curious, maybe even humorous scene here as you go through the events. First, it, it begins with the jealousy among the Sadducees. Remember, the ruling council of Israel was dominated by Sadducees. As a political party within Israel, Sadducees and, and the Pharisees competed, just like Democrats and Republicans today. Sadducees would have been the more liberal group. The, the Pharisees would have been the more uh, conservative group with respect to Jewish law. We think of liberalism or conservatism with respect to law. In our case, that's the way it works, of course, more or less. But in their day, it was no different. The only difference is what law. So the Sadducees took a more liberal view of God's law and the Pharisees took a more stringent, strict view of the law. And still, though, along the same continuum. Sadducees were the ruling authority in that day. So the chief priest and his sect, or the Sadducees, are the, for the most part of the Sanhedrin. You'll see here in a later moment, the Pharisees are represented as well, but they're clearly the party out of power at this time. So they're jealous, we're told, which means they're jealous probably of the apostles' fame and of the success they have in leading the people. And that makes sense because the Sadducees and the Pharisees, for that matter, were desperate for the same kind of following among the people. That's all they wanted, political power. 
Another way to think of it in political, contemporary political terms is that the Democrat or Republican leaders of today might, you could argue, might be jealous of the popularity of the Tea Party or some other grassroots movement. They're getting what these other groups have always wanted for themselves. So they're jealous about this situation. And here comes these untrained Jewish fishermen like Peter to challenge their authority and their popularity among the people. And they're insanely jealous and probably not a little bit missed about the fact that they're disobeying their orders from the Sanhedrin. The Greek language, by the way, implies when it says that they were filled with jealousy in Greek, it's saying they were controlled by their jealousy. So we're told they lay hands upon Peter. Remember, that term lay hands means an aggressive kind of roughing them up as you as you arrest them. That's contrasted with how they arrest them the second time without violence. So one time with one time without. And they're put in jail. Now, this would have to have been the same jail these guys were in earlier. Remember, now we're talking not just about two men. We're talking about all the apostles. So Peter, John and the rest. But Peter and John had been in the same place earlier because the um, Jews did not operate a jail of their own apart from the temple jail. Romans had all the other authority. So if they have anywhere to put them and that's a jail, this would be the only one. So they're back in the temple. You have to imagine Peter and John are getting a little accustomed now to the rough treatment and the process. They know, oh, here we go again in the jail. But that very night, the Lord sets the apostles free by means of an angel. This is the first of three times in the book of Acts when an angel sets somebody free from jail or a supernatural act, an angel of God. And in each case, there's an audience for the release. In this case, the audience is the Jewish authorities. In the next case, we'll see later in the book, it'll be the Roman authorities. In a third case, it's the Greek population of the city of Philippi. So you see it moving from Jewish authority to Greek authority to the populace in the way God is using this event, this kind of a moment. In this case, the release comes with a command. So the angel is given to the apostles a command of what they are to do now that they are released. The apostles were told were to proceed immediately back to the temple where they were just arrested earlier. So it's back exactly to the same place where they were arrested. They are to begin preaching, which they do at daybreak, just as they were doing before. And they were told to preach the whole message of life, which is an interesting term, interesting phrase. You know, ostensibly, it's the gospel. It's the message of salvation, yes. But in the Hebrew, it conveys a very specific sense. It's a kind of idiom or turn of phrase in Hebrew that means something different to the average Hebrew than it would be to you and I if we were to use the same phrase. It means the whole message of life to include resurrection, that there is life to death and then resurrection. That's a part of the gospel message, so it it fits to the theme of the gospel message, certainly. But in the emphasis of the whole message of life, what is being communicated to the apostles is go back out and preach the gospel and don't forget to talk about the resurrection. Make sure you include that part of the message. Now, why? Well, a message of resurrection would have been specifically intended to antagonize Sadducees who were marked by their rejection of such a thing, of the prospect of resurrection. So it would appear as though God is clearly directing the apostles to respond boldly, almost to the point of antagonizing their persecutors rather than shrinking back. It's a kind of over-response to the situation to make the point. Not only to the apostles for the need to be bold in the face of persecution, but to be bold to the point of even going into the mouth of the lion. Back to the same place, doing exactly the same thing, and by the way, take it up a notch so that I can show my might and my power in what comes next. So their response to freedom is not to run and hide but to, and protect themselves. It is to face the threat and continue preaching. 
And the only way you could argue that they would bring themselves to do something like this is by recognizing that God is in control of their life and death. It's sometimes easy to read through a a text like this and not really pause long enough to put yourself in the position of these people, thinking of it like they probably thought about it, and consider what you would have done under the same circumstances. If you give yourself that extra moment, I think the, the impactfulness of the text goes up considerably. Because I think about a true fear for your life, being put in a prison by men who had the authority to, to really do some nasty things to you, and you know what antagonizes them, you know why you're here, and you, you have to imagine there's alternatives. I can still preach the gospel and lead a church, but I don't have to do it quite that same way anymore. I can do it somewhere other than the temple, for example. And then to hear that the message from God is, no, you're going to go back and do it just the way that you got in trouble the first time, that's a scary proposition. It would cause you to, most of us anyway, to pause and to think about whether that was worth it. Last week I wasn't here because I was in Juarez, Mexico, teaching in Juarez, which is not a safe place for the most part right now. For most people who, who knew I was going or knew I had gone, the first question is always, revolve around safety and and understandably so naturally so but it never even dawned on me and i mean i understood that it was unsafe i know the you know i know the news it's not like i'm ignorant of it but it never crossed my mind i mean even while i was there you just don't even think about it I, all i was thinking about was the ministry no different than if i was teaching in a church here in san antonio the fact is when you're there and god's calling you there to do what he's called you to do those things are not of issue because you're not motivated by that thing in the first place that's not to say you're, you're safe from all danger, but it's just to say God takes care of that in one way or another. I read somewhere just this uh, last week, uh, we are immortal until the work God has for us is done. The corollary is, when the work he has for us is done, you will die. But the point is, you won't live a day longer than he needs you to, and you won't die until he's done with you. A life that's directed at safety, that's like spending your whole life working and worrying about making sure there's always gravity. Fruitless, pointless, self-induced fear and concern. That's not to say you run in front of a bus and test God. It's just to say that in the course of doing ministry, fears of what will happen to you are just impediments to getting the ministry done. They're not a factor to weigh in whether or how or where or when. It's like worrying about whether gravity is going to disappear on you and God wants you to do the ministry he wants you to do, then what you're worried about is not a factor. So he's teaching the people through this example that the church's message of salvation won't be bent to fit the desires of the authorities. It's going to go out forcefully no matter what the authorities say. And he's teaching the leadership that these men have his authority behind them in their work and they need to be respectful of that. If anything bolstered their confidence, it was the fact that an angel got them out of prison, right? That should say a lot all by itself. Now the story, as we said already, gets kind of humorous because the Sanhedrin, you have to see this in your mind, right? They come together in daylight. They don't meet at night. They're not supposed to. So they come the next morning expecting for a, a, an inquiry, a trial. So they, there's pomp and there's circumstance and there's all the bravado and the ego that comes with being one of these guys in this position. And they sit down in their, in their positions of authority and they're hum-humming and fur-fur-humming around each other. And they say, okay, we're ready. Bring in the prisoners and we're ready to do our job here and show them that they're wrong and so on. And then some guard comes in a few minutes later and says, oh, they're not here. We don't know what happened to them. It's all locked, but they're just not there. And... The guys are all sitting there and going, all right, now what do we do? And they're worried. They're probably worried for several reasons. They're perplexed. They want to know how it happened, of course. And then they ask, what will come of this? And the question that's probably being spoken there is, first of all, what, what, what do we do next? But more importantly, what does it say about us as leaders that we have this you know, kangaroo court, this, this Keystone Cops moment where our guy is gone, nobody knows where he is, and now what do we do? 
And we're all waiting for the trial to start. And you could say they were probably worried about those things, worried about how it reflected on them. But perhaps they assumed these men had pulled the same disappearing trick, so to speak, that Jesus himself pulled in the tomb. At the last time, they tried to put somebody down. And if Jesus' disappearance led to the movement of thousands that they are now wrestling with, what will the disappearance of 12 more men do to that same movement, potentially? So I wonder if some of the fear and the perplexity here is starting to build out of the fact that, as you say, they've seen this before, and now they're beginning to wonder, what's the effect going to be if this keeps snowballing? So they bring him back. This time, without violence, that's in contrast to the way they were laid hands upon in the first time. So... This is an obvious problem, right? If they're around 10,000 people preaching, adoring fans, so to speak, and two guys come up to arrest them, it was probably more of a, would you mind coming with us, please? Just walk this way. Don't, you know, no problem. We're just going for a walk. Just going for a little walk over here. And nothing more significant than that. Which then begs the question, why did the apostles go? The only answer I would have is that they knew God was working in those circumstances, number one. Number two, they must have anticipated that what God had them go do was going to result in another attention-grabbing moment. And then, number three, they were following the lead of the Lord. When the Lord was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he do? He disavowed himself from any kind of resistance or fighting, and he said, this is God's will, let it be done. So they're following the Lord's decision here in the same way. I find this to be an interesting point of conversation, not here so much in the text. It's something you'd find more in other places of the Bible. But on the question of what is the right level of resistance that a Christian would, would um, demonstrate in the face of something threatening or violent, like, for example, self-defense or in some other context, war. Uh, and I, I think the answer is always found in the context of the situation itself and the purposes God has in it. Here you see something in which they're being persecuted for their faith. And the message of Scripture is consistent in telling us that if we're persecuted for our faith, we do not respond in kind. That that was the nature of Christ, right? They spit on him, they, they punched him, they whipped him, and he never opened his mouth, much less responded. We have a similar approach to persecution. Romans, Paul says, there are times in which we cannot obey authorities because the authorities ask us to do things contrary to Scripture. The response to that is not to fight the authorities. The response is to submit to the punishment that comes when we disobey the authorities. You obey the authorities, which means obeying what comes when you disobey. Right? There's a penalty for breaking the law. You let the penalty rest on you. You don't try to avoid it. You acknowledge it. I'm, I'm agreeing that I have to be penalized because I've disobeyed your law, but it's so that I won't have to disobey God's law and suffer his penalty. But in that way, you're still being a good citizen, so to speak, right? And in the case of something like self-defense or war, it's not in the same context. At that point, you're not in the position you're in because they've come after you for faith purposes. You're dealing more with simple violence, not directed at faith, directed at you for, for other reasons. And... I would argue that you have at your disposal anything that the law allows. In the same way that the law allows you to be a governor of a state and commit someone to execution if they violate the law, and that is, a, that is not an ungodly thing to do. That is within the dispensations that God has provided for there to be government and rule of law, and that is a means that God uses to produce orderly, safe living on earth. You're participating in that because you're doing it according to law. And as an individual in this, in this state, you have the right to bear arms or you have the right to defend yourself. These are all law-abiding ways to respond. So now, verse 27, when they brought them up, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. 
The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had to put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Does that sound like the kind of thing you kill somebody for? You can begin to see a bit of supernatural influence here, as as you might have seen earlier with Jesus. But here's the second time now that we see in Acts a court in Israel convened to address the issue of teaching in the temple. And now you have an even higher presence with the high priest. This would have been Annas, the same high priest that was involved in Jesus' trial. He's present. Earlier, Luke had said, even the entire assembly of the elders or of the leadership. So we have the entire Sanhedrin gathered here. This is, a, this is not a common event, especially for something like this. It tells you something about how they perceived the growth of the church. It was beginning to be so big and so numerous and so potentially threatening to their authority that they spared no effort to get a control over it through this kind of an adjudicated result or some, t- some kind of decision. So he begins the proceedings first by noting the council's previous judgment that they had been commanded not to teach in this name. Notice he doesn't even say the name of Christ. He refuses to name Jesus' name. And then the priest adds that the apostles were trying to bring the blood of Jesus upon the council. What he's suggesting here is that the apostles had been slandering the council, that's their point of view, of course, by accusing them of having been the source or the cause of Jesus' unlawful killing. Or put it another way, they, they claim to be his murderers. Now, in truth, that's exactly what they did. They were certainly a part of the conspiracy. They had even told Pilate, if you remember, back in Matthew 27, verse 25, they even were the ones in the crowd telling Pilate, let the blood of him be on us and on our children, remember? When Pilate said, I find nothing against this man, and I don't want the blood on my hands, and they said, okay, well, put the blood on us. That is a way of saying it it will be our guilt if this man was innocent. We will be the ones who were guilty. Now they turn it around, though, and they deny such a thing and hold it against the apostles and even say it's an accusation that they're slandering. What they're trying to do, though, is what these men often did was hypocritically distance themselves from their own sin and turn it around and and, and accuse somebody else of the very same thing. So they were the ones who made these pronouncements against Jesus, but in their own mind they've come to believe they were totally innocent of anything. They did nothing wrong. This guy deserved it or whatever. And the apostles are out claiming, no, you did it. You notice they say it right back again to the man. To the, to the high priest. Peter reiterates to them. If you notice, it says Peter and the apostles answered. So Peter's speaking, but he's not the only one speaking. And he reiterates they must obey God. And this goes to the specific point I made just a short time ago. As Christians, we must obey God and earthly authorities as well until they conflict. And then we must obey God over the authorities while willingly submitting to the punishment that comes our way for disobeying earthly authorities. This is what Peter and the apostles are doing here. They're willing to suffer, if necessary, to obey God. They're not running from these people. They're not actively resisting them. Then Peter reiterates Jesus was raised. He was resurrected and put to death by the Jewish, as a result of of being put to death by the Jewish authorities. Uh, It's interesting here that he mentions yet again being raised or resurrected, continuing to push at that point, knowing even then that the Sadducees wouldn't like it. And then he adds something interesting. He says, and he was hung on a tree, hanging him on a cross or on a tree. Remember, in Deuteronomy, it was considered uh, a person was considered cursed if they were left to hang on a tree overnight or hang on a tree as a result of 
or being killed by hanging on a tree. That was always a unique and interesting provision in the law, but we finally understood its purpose later when it was a way of emphasizing that Jesus was a curse for our sake and that the nature of his death being hung on a tree or on a cross was a sign that the curses of sin were being placed on him instead of on us. But because that's a very dishonoring way to, to die, take two things here together and you realize why these men got so upset at Peter. Because he said he was resurrected, which is offensive to them, and he was resurrected because you put him to death by hanging him on a tree. You did something very dishonoring to him in the way you killed him. And he was your prince. He was your savior. They call him the Messiah. So you put all three together and, you're, and very clearly what he's saying is you took God's Messiah, treated him in the most dishonorable way you could as you put him to death, and then God the Father resurrected him, which, by the way, you say can't even happen. Is there anything I've left out? No, I think that's pretty much everything you did. And they are now ready to jump up and kill the man because of that kind of insulting, uh, antagonistic testimony. Finally, Peter says, we are witnesses to these things. We are your accusers, in other words. And the Holy Spirit confirms this truth among those who believe. So, by the way, there's 10,000 people more back there in the portico who all think the same thing about you right now. You know, at this point, it's amazing they didn't jump up and kill the apostles because you've done everything you possibly can to stir their anger here. Unfortunately, disobeying a command of the Council of Jerusalem does not carry the death penalty under Jewish law. So they would have to violate their own law. They'd have to commit murder to kill these two apostles because they have no crime worthy of death before the council. So they may have wanted to kill them, but they lacked the grounds to carry it out. And fortunately, cooler heads in the moment prevailed. You have in verse 34, the next major scene. You have a Pharisee, it says, named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it'll be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Or else you may even be found fighting against God. They took his advice. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. The famous Gamaliel, you know his name probably. Paul uses it, of course, because Paul refers to Gamaliel as his instructor, and it is a part of how Paul credits himself in a sense, how he demonstrates that he had a lot at stake when he chose to become a Christian because he was repudiating a very important pedigree in the way he was trained under such a, a storied leader. Uh, I found a description of Gamaliel from Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. He said he was an elder statesman, and here's what he said about the man. He said, Gamaliel was a disciple of Rabbi Hillel, and at this time, he was the head of the school of Hillel. In Jewish sources, he was known as Rabban Gamaliel. Most rabbis are simply called Rav or Ravi, which means teacher or my teacher, respectively. But Gamaliel was given the title of Rabban, and this is a title above rabbi, which means our teacher, and was a special title of the leader of the school of Hillel. Gamaliel was the first of seven rabbis to ever have this title. This was the same Gamaliel who was Paul's teacher, according to Acts 22.3. 
He had so much influence in his own time that the Jewish Mishnah states that since Reven Gamaliel, the elder, died, there has been no more reverence for the law and purity and abstinence died out at the same time. The point is that Reven Gamaliel was able to hold a moral force that others followed simply because of the strength of his own moral character. He goes on to say that he was a doctor of the law, which refers to his position of knowledge in the law of Moses. He had an authority to interpret the law in accordance with the Jewish traditions. As to his reputation, he was in the honor of all the people. Everyone held him in some degree of honor, including Sadducees, even though that Gamaliel was a Pharisee. One of his more famous sayings, Gamaliel's famous sayings, was procure yourself a teacher, avoid being in doubt, do not accustom yourself to giving tithes by guess. That was Rabban Gamaliel. He's kind of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Billy Graham all wrapped up into one in this setting. So he stands up at a point in this council, in this meeting, which it's just the fact that he chooses to stand up and say something would have made everybody in the room say, okay, sh- what is Gamaliel going to say? Nobody would challenge him. Nobody would want to go against him and, and look a fool. Gamaliel sends the apostles out so he can confer with the council. And his first words are, be careful with these men. Or another way to say this, don't overstep your bounds and make a foolish move here. Don't overreact to these guys. And in a sense, what he does is make a case for the fact that these situations have a way of working themselves out. That's really his overriding argument. These things have a way of working themselves out. And he uses two historical examples from Israel's recent past. These, both these examples would have happened in the lifetime of Gamaliel. So he's speaking from his personal memory from a time recent for all those men in which there were individuals who revolted against Roman authority in, in Israel, against the Romans in Israel, and, and they gained some measure of followers within their gatherings, within their movement. But eventually, Rome or someone else rose up to execute these gentlemen, these two, these two uh, rebels. And when they died, their followers dispersed. Then nothing came of the movement because the leaders were gone. And Gamaliel's implication is clear. If these guys are just, yet again, more revolutionaries with some crackpot idea on how they're going to overturn the world and blah, 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 eventually, they're going to butt heads with Rome. And when they butt heads with Rome, Rome will win. And when Rome wins, their admirers are going to just fade away. And in that case, the Jewish authorities wouldn't have to get involved. But if they chose to get involved, think about the relationship now between the Jewish leadership and Rome. And this is where Gamaliel is really focused. The Jewish rule of of the Sanhedrin and all that came with it in the nation of Israel existed only because they had reached a kind of understanding with the Romans that they could rule themselves to a limit to the degree that they didn't get in the way of the Romans or violate any Roman law. They had a measure of autonomy internally to, to rule themselves. No other conquered state in the entire empire of Rome and in the history of the Roman Empire was ever granted that same license. The Jews were completely unique in that. And most say it's because they were so stiff-necked and unrulable that it was the only way that the Romans could achieve any measure of stability or peace in that region. So they let them have their law, let them have their temple, let them have their own rulers. They just put a kind of umbrella leadership over all of that. So Gamaliel, thinking about it from that point of view as a statesman, is saying to himself and to this group, if we go after these guys and overreach, like for example, if I let you stand up and kill them like you want to do right now, we will be violating Roman law and we will be begging for the Romans to step in and put an end to our autonomy. And 
for that matter, these things have a way of working themselves out. Let them go crazy. We don't have to be the ones. And as they fight against the goads and reach a limit with Rome, Rome will take care of our problem for us. And the rest of the 10,000, they'll just fade away. So that's his, that's his logical assumption or his logical uh, argument. And it makes good sense. One thing to consider, though, here is, uh, or the, turning to the second half of it, he says, on the other hand, just to complete the thought, he says, on the other hand, if this truly is of God, then it's a fruitless thing to avoid any, to, to, to stop it anyway. You're just fighting against God. And of course, you, you know, you pious and respectable leaders of Israel would never want to be accused of fighting against God. Not the, never mind the fact that that's exactly what they were doing. But he makes that argument, it's persuasive, and of course, they, um, they give into it, or they, they agree to it. One thing to say in passing, though, is Gamaliel's argument is very logical and very sensible. It doesn't make it biblical. Luke is quoting Gamaliel as Gamaliel offers his human opinion. That doesn't make it scriptural. You see the difference? That's often the mistake, we, or one of the mistakes we can make in interpreting scripture, is the fact that it's captured in the text seems to suggest that is the wisdom of God in the text. But that's not necessarily true. When the text is simply... um, recording the narrative of history in some form, it's scripture in that it's an accurate reflection of what happened. But that doesn't mean it's endorsing what was said and making it scriptural in and of itself. So the, the, the principle here that Gamaliel is suggesting, don't resist men. If it's not from God, it'll just die out on its own. No, that's not true. Uh, there are an awful lot of man-made movements that persist even to today and have been around for centuries and they're not dying out anytime soon. That doesn't mean anything about them. That doesn't mean they're from God because they're not dying out and vice versa, right? Sometimes God brings something to life and then he lets it fade away for his own purposes. That's the church at Ephesus, right? If they don't change and return to their first love, I take your lampstand away. Sure enough, he took their lampstand away as, as we know what happened in history. So th- those patterns are not biblical in the way he expressed it. This is a political move. This is not one based on of a religious interest in the moment. The council agrees, releases the apostles, but not without a flogging. And by the way, that's a severe punishment. They didn't flog in the same way that the Romans did. So it wasn't with a whip with metal parts on the end so that it cut out your flesh. And the Romans flogged you with the anticipation that you were going to be killed anyway. They weren't looking to soft pedal their, their punishment. It was if it killed you in the moment, that was just faster. So there was no attempt to make it survivable from the Romans' point of view. But from the Jewish point of view, it was the more traditional with a, a bare, just leather whip. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt like crazy. It's going to leave marks, but it's not going to kill you. If they followed the law, and you can bet these men would have done everything scrupulously when it suited them. Deuteronomy 25 calls for 40 minus 1 lashes, so 39. This is the first time believers are physically persecuted for their faith in the book of Acts and in the history of the church. And what was their crime? Disobeying the previous council order not to teach in the name of Jesus. So we'll pick up there next week in chapter 6. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that what we hear tonight would embolden us as well to, to go out into the world and to be salt and to be light, but for good, for, for the purpose of glorifying your name. And then as we may receive resistance at times, we pray, Father, we would be bold as your spirit leads us to remain a good witness and not to be consciously concerned about our physical being and and our life here because, Father, that is in your hands. Thank you, Lord, that we were here tonight to hear and to study your word. May we be back soon to do it again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.